This episode brought to you by Harvest Media. Software as a service. Tools for your catalog, including cloud-based distribution, web applications, APIs, and royalty accounting. Harvest Media, setting the standard globally for publishing and production music. And hello to everybody who's listening to episode 43 of Synchronized. Hi, Simon. Good to see you again. How do you, Ferry? How's things? Yeah, things are fine. You know, we've got great weather today here in Holland, so... Uh, I've got a smile on my face and I'm looking yeah. forward to recording this, uh, this episode because today we've got from Megatrex uh, the president and CEO, Ron Mendelssohn. Hi, Ron. How are you doing? Hi, Ferry. How are you? Nice to see you. Fine. We're doing fine. It's, uh, it's great to have you as a guest. Um, we always start with a simple question, uh, Ron. Can you just tell us how you ended up in this business? Um, well, we've been doing this for a long time. Uh, I came out, I'm originally from New York. I came out to L.A. in 1987 to uh, attend the film scoring program at USC. And uh, at the time, at some point, uh, I ran into my business partner, J.C. Dwyer, um, who managed to uh, get an internship at the NBC Music Department in the on-air promo department. And uh, we ended up uh, writing, uh, writing together, writing cues together at the time. And sure enough, the cues ended up uh, in the hands of producers. They ended up on the air. And that was really the, the inception uh, of the whole business. So, uh, so basically, we just kind of fell into it by, uh, by having the good fortune of being in the right place at the right time. And when was this? That was, uh, that was in 1989. And was that the start of Megatrex, Ron, or did you start with a different brand name and move on? Or? Uh, um, well, uh, we did, in fact, uh, we did, had very uh, little, in fact, non-existent business experience. So we did, in fact, uh, launch under a different uh, business name, which turned out to be a conflict uh, with one of our uh, colleagues, esteemed colleagues in the industry, who very uh, graciously pointed out to us that no, we cannot use that <laughs> name because he was already essentially using the same name, and he was extraordinarily uh, gracious about it. And we promptly changed the name, and that was the first of many, many mistakes that we've made in our long career. And uh, Ron, tell me how big the company is now. Do you have how many employees and how you work? Uh, we have 35 employees, and uh, the company at this point, uh, since the pandemic, has been uh, pretty much 100% virtual, although we do have new offices in Burbank. But we have uh, 35 employees. Uh, most of them are based in the U.S., and some are based in Brazil. So which and territories do you operate in? We operate in the entire Western Hemisphere, which is a huge chunk of the world, uh, North, South, Central America. Um, so we have the good fortune to serve a very uh, vast territory. And uh, abroad in Europe, do you use sub-publishers, Ron, or do you have your own offices? Um, well, we just started operating directly in Portugal, and we're absolutely delighted about that. Uh, and it's, that's our first direct operation in Europe. Um, and that, that's, that's been a real learning experience. It's been fantastic. Uh, the other uh, major territories, we, uh, we have some very uh, trusted sub-publishers that we operate with. It's interesting. Uh, can I ask you why you decided to start your own uh, office in, in Portugal? 
Um, it was a very a natural kind of evolution. We, uh, we've handled uh, Brazil directly for many years, and our team in Brazil came to us and said, hey, you know, I think uh, we can handle Portugal directly ourselves. And we said, well, great, uh, give it a shot and, and see how it goes. And sure enough, uh, they're, uh, they're doing a great job over there. Because you know that we have been discussing in Synchronized uh, the future of sub-publishing. You're also a sub-publisher yourself. Is that correct? Uh, yes, it is correct. We do represent uh, a number of select uh, catalogs, mostly from Europe. So c can you give us your view on the future of sub-publishing? Absolutely. Um, so, uh, I think we live in, in basically kind of a hybrid world at this point where sub-publishers are absolutely essential in every territory to develop the relationships with clients, to pitch the music in their territory, to work with the local collection societies to maximize collections. These are all things that, that need to be done on the ground in each territory, and it's unavoidable, and there's no way around that. However, that needs to coexist with the real need these days for global licensing. Most of the digital entities and digital platforms, they, they just automatically assume that they can get a global uh, license. So, uh, you know, we have found ways of working with our sub-publishers that are accommodating, um, that uh, we coordinate with them, and we find that we're able to navigate this kind of hybrid world. But um, so I think the key word here is flexibility. Uh, Sub-publishers are absolutely essential to have, but catalogs uh, also, uh, publishers also need the ability to issue global licenses when clients demand that. So when you, when you look at the relationship between the original publisher and the sub-publisher, we've been dealing with contracts that well, probably have been in existence since the year dot. You know, nothing has changed. Do you think all these contracts need to be reinvented, so to speak? I think they need to, I wouldn't say reinvented, I would say they do need to be tweaked. Uh, I, I would say that um, there need to be, uh, there needs to be language in these contracts uh, regarding a, a global licensing and how global licensing is handled so that publishers are not turning away deals. I think that's not in the interest of anybody. Uh, there needs to be language in there about how uh, YouTube revenues are, are handled. So I think they just need to be updated and tweaked. The, the basic guts of the agreement are still, are still applicable, but I think they need to be uh, tweaked around the edges for, for the digital platforms. Hmm. So Ron, tell us a bit about uh, your, the music you produce. Do you produce music of all types or do you specialize in certain segments of music? Um, well, you know, the way we started was very much uh, focusing on music for promotion and advertising. And that's, you know, that's still um, my focus as a producer. Um, we started doing music for TV promo. We were the first library to produce music directly for TV promo. Sure, there were, there were other libraries in existence in, in 1989, but they were all kind of general libraries. At that point, you know, there were none, to my knowledge, of very highly specialized libraries and certainly no libraries that were focusing on TV promo. So that was that was really where we started. And that's always been my focus, just producing the best and most current music for promotion and advertising. 
And ha- over the years, has that become increasingly competitive? You say that at the beginning you were kind of the only ones doing it. Are there a lot of competitors now? Oh, of course, it's been competitive, but it's kind of uh, amusing because when we started uh, in 1989 and we came out with our first physical CDs and, and brought them around to you know networks and, and started our first contacts with sub-publishers, people said to us, well, you know, the market's really saturated. We don't, we don't need another library in 1989. So we've been hearing this, we've been hearing this all along. And at the end of the day, as, as you gentlemen know, it's not about the market saturation. It's about, you know, do you have something that really cuts through that really stands out? And if you do, there's always going to be room for you in the market. Yeah. Yeah. You've been in the business, uh, well, for 30 plus years. Um, You've seen a lot of changes. Can you tell us a couple of changes that you think were great changes and other changes that you thought, well, we could have missed those one? Yeah, that's it's really interesting because when we started, we were not even on CDs. We were on cassette and our first music we brought around to clients literally on cassette tape. Um, And of course, then we went through the physical CDs and we, we had a lot of success, you know, making these binders with physical CDs organized by music genre, you know, uh, drama and comedy and and transferring them to uh, to videotape and everything and the CD-ROMs. Um, so, of course, you know, the, the fit, the media obviously has completely changed. I think that that's been that's been a great thing. It used to be. Uh, it was quite a production to have to print up uh, physical, press up physical CDs and print out booklets and then proof everything. That was quite a big production. So that's certainly been a great thing. Uh, of course, it has considerably lowered the barriers to entry when everything is digital. But yeah, uh, but that's certainly something that we appreciate. And I'm sure clients appreciate no longer having, you know, racks and racks and racks of CDs to go through in their library with little post-it notes on them like they did back in the day. But um, one, you know, one thing that I would point to as a positive is just the production. I mean, you know, back in the day, uh, up up until very recently, we maintained a full recording studio, uh, a very uh, sizable recording studio in North Hollywood. And basically, you know, to do a session, we would call in musicians and artists on site in LA. And of course, they had to be in LA. And we would have a traditional recording session. And now, you know, the whole world is our recording studio, as we say. And just over the last few months, we've uh, produced albums in, you know, Colombia, Trinidad, Italy, you know, Ukraine, and and uh, other other places. And uh, it's extraordinary that we can tap into talent instantaneously all over the world. So I would say this is uh, this is one of the things that's been a very very positive. Uh, change. Do you so still t- have your own recording studio? Uh, we re- very recently uh, gave up the recording studio. Obviously, during COVID, uh, the studio was not used at all. And even prior to COVID, we, we found we were just using the studio less and less uh, because of the constraints of, of having to have the artists physically in LA and you know, not to mention, um, I don't want to go into too much detail, but the various restrictions of involved with recording musicians in California. There are so many laws that the state of California uh, imposes, and um, 
other organizations that I won't discuss right now. But there are a lot of a lot, a lot of uh, restrictions when it comes to hiring musicians and hiring composers and recording in LA and California. And frankly, it's a heck of a lot easier, very unfortunately, for us to record uh, out of state or out of the country. And that's that's just a fact. Um, it's 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 very uh, it's a very unfortunate situation that they've uh, the state of California has created here to make it difficult for people to conduct business and for for musicians and artists to earn a living. It's it's uh, very unfortunate that the uh, legislators here do not understand uh, what we do. So, Ron, just going back on one of your points, you you were saying how one of the great changes is moving from physical formats to downloads and streaming do you think have we reached an ideal now are we going to look at these formats we're used to well into the future or do you think this is going to continue to evolve and new formats will become the norm quite soon or how do you see that going well i think you know the real barometer is ease of use and that's really what drives the economy that's what drives the market that's what drives every industry and you know we've seen a lot of trends uh, over the years um we've seen um you know high resolution audio we've seen 5-1 surround sound we've seen surround sound emulation and, and all kinds of other you know supposed innovations for better quality and better sound and at the end of the day you know the vast majority of the market they just want ease of use they just want to find the right track click on it and download it uh, with as a minimum of friction. And so uh, I think, you know, that's really where it's at now. Uh, I, don't, I don't know where, where further the, the actual media will evolve from here other than digital audio files. I don't really see that, but I, see, I think there's a lot of work that still needs to be done in terms of making it easier for clients to license music. Uh, of course, the quality has always been related to download speeds and, uh, e as you say, ease of use. So as download speeds get faster, ease of use allows you to have better quality audio, which means something Fair and I have talked about. The, perhaps on your website you have people can stream for free a track in order to audition it before they commit to logging in and downloading. And we're noticing that as streams get better quality and you can just use a couple of keystrokes on your Mac or your PC and rip that tune. How theft of music is on the up again. Uh, and of course, we've got watermarking and fingerprinting as a counter to that. But I wonder where you stood on this, whether you thought your streams should be poor quality so people don't steal them or good quality so they look at your catalogue and go, wow, that's amazing. Well, this is a really interesting question. And... Um We've always said in this industry that there's a certain percentage of music of theft that's just going on, whether intentional or unintentional. There's, there's a, just a large chunk of usage of people out there uh, who are using our music, uh, whether intentional or not, without a license. And whether that's by capturing streams or whether it's uh, former clients who still have uh, the, the audio files on a server somewhere, um, or whatever. Uh, but now, you know, more and more we have the technology to track that. And that's been just a fantastic thing. And we've been uh, working with BMAT uh, with great success. And we found a lot 
of um, uh, broadcasters and other entities uh, who are using our music without, uh, without license. We have tracked them down. We have uh, recouped uh, significant uh, sums of money from them all over the Western Hemisphere, in, including, including surprisingly, in the U.S. And I've had conversations with with uh, infringers, and you know, it's people don't realize that this technology is out there now, and we can we can track it. And of course, you know, with YouTube, we know exactly what's going on. YouTube with the content ID system. With BMAT, we know exactly uh, what's going on with uh, with broadcasts. So increasingly, you know, we can track where our music is being used, and we can monetize it. So this is this has been a, uh, to, to Ferry's earlier question. This has been a, another extremely positive development in the industry. Not to mention with the PROs, more increasingly, the PROs are using uh, BMAT and TuneSat as well. Uh, to to monitor and pay for performances. So these are very, very positive developments. So Ron, have you developed a specific de- department within your organization to deal with this specifically? I mean, perhaps legally based or or is this still quite ad hoc? Or I mean, is this really now a serious way of making income? It is. It is a serious way of making income. And yes, we have set up a dedicated uh, department. We hired a, uh, a data analyst uh, who's been terrific, and we have a team of people. And their job is to uh, review the BMAT reports. And uh, obviously, we we, uh, we we use the philosophy "follow the dollar." We're not going to go after you know small little stations where there's not much potential. But there are some very large uh, broadcasters and other other clients who are using the music, and we have a department that tracks that. When you look at the people who've used your music uh, without a proper license, um, is there, can you say anything about the percentage of people that have actively chosen to steal the music? Or are we talking about people who had no idea that they had to pay for the music? Um, that's interesting. And frankly, we don't, we don't dive too deeply into the motivations of the people because either it's a... Uh, you know, either they're infringing or not. And, and the reason that they're infringing is of less interest to us. But um, I'd say um, anecdotally, I'd say a large chunk, I'd say a large chunk of the people fall into, into the group that um, either they were not aware or they thought, or they were kind of aware and they thought they could get away with it. But I don't, so I think it was kind of I think it's more you know laziness than anything else. There's there's files that that are have been downloaded somewhere or that someone brings to to their edit bay and they just use it and they just assume oh no one's going to know we used it and that's this does not deal with it. So I think uh, I think it's just been you know just uh, not not really intentional but just assuming that they can get away with it. Ron, I know you've put a lot of work into maintaining the value of music through articles and keynotes and things. I wonder if you could tell you, tell us a bit about that, how you see how we can all help to maintain the value of music. Yeah, well, this, um, you know, again, back to uh, Ferry's original question, which is a very good question. This is one of the negatives that I've seen over the last 30 years and, you know, something in the PMA, you know, that we refer to as, you know, race to the bottom. 
And, you know, so many companies, instead of focusing on, you know, how can I really stand out in the market? How can I really make a product that's unique and different? Uh, how can I add value in the market to what's not already there? So many companies are just ask, asking the question, how can I make a quick buck? And, and the answer, more often than not, that they come up with is, well, let's just offer a lot of cheap, really cheap music. Okay, and, and this has been a very unfortunate trend and there's been some very prominent companies that have jumped on this bandwagon. And I, I think it's, it's, it's very unfortunate because music has value. Music is not, uh, I don't believe music is a commodity, but and it shouldn't be treated like a commodity. So uh, music does have value to it. And I think it's incumbent on all of us to really push back and see where we can add value wherever possible, as opposed to making a quick buck. So as I understand the laws of economics, when you get oversupply, you're going to get a, a, a fall in price. So, I mean, is there a, do you see a link in our business between oversupply, which I think we probably agree there's a lot of music around, and falling value? Well, you know, again, oversupply assumes that all the, the products in the market are a commodity and they're all interchangeable. But uh, I don't uh, I don't assume that at all. I assume that, you know, if if you come out with a product that's truly unique and different and adds value, then it's not a commodity anymore. And it's not to be lumped in with all the other uh, products in the marketplace. So uh, oversupply only uh, applies if someone is producing the same thing that's already out there, generic content. And there is a lot of you know generic content in our industry, certainly. Uh, we try to avoid that uh, with Megatracks. You know, when we produce an album, we try to produce something that's that's really needed in the marketplace. We don't have the approach that, well, we must produce X number of albums per year and like these are widgets or something. We don't do that. We say we identify a need in the marketplace. Here's what clients are asking for. Here's where we see the trend moving towards. Um, and then we, we hire the right artists for it and we try to produce something really special and unique. Do, do we succeed all the time? Of course not, but that's what we, what we aim to do. Yeah. I think it's also interesting, you just mentioned uh, about the recording studio in uh, LA and in California, and you said it's very difficult to hire people and to um, get them work and, and, and make that happen. Um, and ease of use, that's also something that you said. I think the same thing applies to what our customers want to have when they use our music. You know, I think our industry, also with all the PROs around the world, the different uh, rate cards, it's not easy to license music. So, as I always say, water is always looking for the lowest point, so people look for alternatives, and that's what some of the um, companies came up with. So don't you think that somehow it's also a bit down to us and the PROs that the, the race to the bottom is going on? I, I agree 100%. And, and um, uh, you've had so, some other um, uh, colleagues uh, on this podcast who, who, have, uh, who do not see uh, some of these companies, these royalty-free companies, as a threat. But I very much do see them. Uh, as a threat and I think we have as an industry have something to learn from them um, they have found a way to make it easy 
and frictionless to license music to a certain segment of the market. And that's not something to be brushed aside. That's something, just as you alluded to, it's complicated in the traditional model to license music. It's complicated to deal with multiple collection societies and different territories. And this is something that we have to figure out as an industry. Clients want uh, instantaneous licensing and they want to be able to clear all rights and they want to be able to uh, clear global global rights as well. And we can't push back and say, no, 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 it's more complicated than that because they're going to win, okay? The, the clients will get what they want and it's incumbent on us as an industry to figure that out and to make it work for for uh, for everybody, including the, the, the labels, the sub-publishers, the PROs and everybody else. Otherwise, you know, some of these companies will in, in, continue to increase their market share at our expense. If you would be able to sit down right now and draw a new picture of the production music industry worldwide, um, just, just a couple of thoughts. Would you give territories exclusively to certain sub-publishers or would you say, no, it needs to be more flexible? Um, well, I'm a huge uh, advocate for exclusivity. Uh, so I think, you know, when it comes to music, um, if a publisher does not exclusively represent its content, then they're not going to take it very seriously. And the same with the sub-publisher. If the sub-publisher does not have exclusive rights to a catalog in its territory, it's not going to take it very seriously. So I, I'm, I'm a huge advocate of exclusivity, but it's not you know, a, a black or white situation. It's, I see it as more of a hybrid situation where we need to have the exclusivity of sub-publishers while also being able to offer a global licenses and uh, simplified, uh, maybe um, simplified collection societies that are more unified across the world. So, Ron, you, you just going back slightly, uh, you, you said that, um, well, really that um, to counter the disruptors, we as an industry needed to come up with some strategies. And I wondered if you felt that we can do it alone or whether we need the PROs to get behind us. And before you answer, I, last year I asked the first question at the PRS AGM and my question was, what strategies have you in place to counter the disruptors? And they came back and said, we've got two strategies. One is size, we're bigger than them. And two is quality, we're better than them. And I found that really not uh, really getting to the heart of things. I wondered if you felt that PROs could be doing more to help us. Well, there's no question about that. And, you know, the PMA has been working closely uh, with the PROs in the U.S. Um, the PROs, I, I would say, you know, in general, they do, they do a great job. And, you know, they do a great job. Uh, negotiating on our behalf and we're huge supporters uh, of the PROs and we, we try to support them wherever possible because the the alternative uh, the alternative is 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 the the end of of performance licensing the end of mechanical licensing because independent publishers cannot negotiate these kind of licenses uh, on their own so we need the PROs we need the collection societies we need to support them they offer collective licensing that we cannot do on our own. That being said, you know, I think they still have a long way to go in terms of uh, 
catching up with the digital platforms and monetizing the digital platforms and in terms of transparency right now, um, you know, how performances are paid, uh, it's still it's still very unclear. And there's still a lot of arbitrary waiting formulas uh, in existence at the PROs that are kind of, you know, legacy, these legacy waiting formulas that may have made sense 50 years ago, but no longer make sense now. Um, so I think uh, the PROs need to continue moving towards uh, greater transparency and also uh, be more readily adopt the technologies that are available. Um, we There are technologies that are out there and have been out there, frankly, for years that allow us to track every literally every every performance that's out there and for them to be paid fairly and i, I would uh we urge the pros to adopt these technologies and to integrate them uh, into their into their distribution and to move towards really um abolishing the the arbitrary waiting formulas that that still exist at, at a lot of the pros I was just uh, about to ask the question because you mentioned bmat and you mentioned tuneset and you said well it's very easy now to track the use of music um, and now you're saying, well, the PROs could do the same thing. They, they've known that this technology has been around for a couple of years. What do you think keeps them from implementing it? Well, I think, you know, I think they're, they're moving in the right direction. I'm, I'm most familiar, of course, with ASCAP and BMI. And I think that they are moving in the right direction. They are trying to do the right thing. And, uh, you know, if you go to the BMAT website, they have a, a, a page on their website which shows all the PROs around the world that are uh, making use of their technology to one extent or the other. And last time I checked, I think it was hundreds of, PR, uh, of collection societies around the world that are, that are using BMAT technology. Uh, a number of uh, PROs are accepting TuneSat data. I know that a number of PROs uh, are using SoundMouse and other technologies. I'm, I'm pretty sure ASCAP is still using uh, SoundMouse. So they're moving in the right direction. I, I would just, you know, we would just like to see it uh, ha happen uh, more quickly instead of, uh, you know, incrementally. Can I move the subject sideways and, and just talk a bit about AI? Um, so it seems to me that you, you, in your, your analysis of the disruptors, you, you kind of say that some Publishers that really see it as a threat and some others don't see it as a threat at all. I would say the same applies to AI. Some, some publishers see it as uh, something that's very useful and others see it as something that isn't really relevant. I wonder how you see it being used. Um, well, we have, um, we, we have uh, added to our website the uh, audio matching function. And I'll give a shout out to Ames, to... Uh, to Martin and Einar at Ames, and they've they've come up with a fantastic product, and and uh, and kudos to them. And we uh, we were very uh, quick to integrate that into our new website uh, that launched last year. So we're uh, we're huge believers in AI to the extent that it's technology that can be used to help clients find the right track quickly to to automatically curate content. That's that's where we see uh, AI having the most use as as a curation tool um, uh, uh, as to create recommendations personalized recommendations um, like you know you go to netflix you go to amazon you know here's a movie uh, that we think you would like based on your viewing history here's a product we think you might want to buy 
this is where we see the value in AI. Uh, and there's great potential there. And there's a lot of work that still needs to be done there. But, you know, in terms of music creation and personalized recommendations and audio matching, um, music search, this is where we really see the potential for AI. Uh, I'm not one of these people that think that there's some dystopian future where you're going to press a button and some AI robot is going to replace a composer, composer track. Um, I don't think that's going to happen in my lifetime or, or anytime soon. I think, you know, computers, they do a great job when it comes to analytical tasks, when it comes to crunching numbers, uh, when it comes to, you know, digesting a lot of existing data, because computers can only look backwards. You can only feed them data that's already in existence. But when it comes to creating something completely new and having a spark of an idea or an inspiration, uh, to my knowledge anyway, I don't think this is where computers really excel. That's where you know humans, human creativity needs to be involved. And so I, uh, I, I, it's not one of the things that keeps me up at night worrying about computers writing music and replacing composers. I, I don't see that happening anytime soon. So what does keep you up at night? <laughs> um, really, um, really what we touched on earlier, just, you know, how can we really make it easier for clients uh, to license music? Uh, because what's happening right now, uh, although some people might not see it this way, but I very much see it this way, is right now we are relinquishing a large chunk of the market. And let's let's face reality here. Um, and you can say, well, these are just YouTubers or these are just people doing wedding videos or whatever, whatever, but that's not the case, okay? We're in the field and I can tell you that's not the case. Um, for By and large, the professional, quote unquote, users in film, TV and advertising, they're still sticking with the traditional uh, a production library model, but you know, there's a swath of the market that is really uh, going for ease of use. And that doesn't include the not only the YouTubers, but also people who are producing corporate videos, you know, people who are producing uh, uh, institutional videos and educational videos and, and, and things of that and podcasters, you know, these are these are not people that that are, are saying, well, you know, I must go to you know, one of the PMA affiliated libraries to make sure I have all the clearances. I, this is not happening. These are people who are going online. They want a track. They type in their credit card and they download a track. So, you know, I am not prepared to simply ignore that and abdicate a portion of the market that does not need to be abdicated. I think we have better music. We have better service. We have better technology. We certainly have better quality control, which too is, is non-existent to a large extent with royalty-free catalogs. We've even found our music, as other PMI, PMA libraries have found their music on some of these sites in the past, because there's no quality control. So we have every advantage. We just need to make licensing simpler. I am not willing to cede that market. Uh, to royalty-free catalogs who are crowdsourcing music with, with zero quality control. But the strange thing is, Ron, that if you look at it, these guys have the biggest part of the pie because they have the consumer market, 
And we deal with the business to business, which is a smaller uh, part of the pie. Well, it's, um, it's, I would say it's not that simple to bifurcate the market into business uh, business and consumer. I think there's a lot of overlap, and this is what concerns me. If it were able to be neatly put into two separate boxes, I would not be concerned. But the problem is there's a lot of overlap. There's a lot of gray area between those two markets. As I mentioned, you know, people who are producing corporate videos, independent producers, people who are producing podcasts, well, are they professional or or are they consumers? It's it's not clear right now. And this is where there's a lot of leakage there between these two markets. And this is where I'm concerned. So, Ron, um, I, I think we're, we're with you here, Ferry and I, and I'm sure lots of people who are listening are right with you and like the sound of what, you, what you're saying. But is it up to each of us to fight or is it something that we have to co-op, come together as a group and make something of scale that, that counters the large disruptors? Well, that's a very tricky question because obviously, you know, if we try to, to all come together and do something and then, then we run the risk of, you know, collusion and antitrust and everything, if anything involving, you know, rates or that sort of thing. So it's, it's a tricky thing. Um, I don't know how to answer that. I think it's more something that, you know, each company needs to decide on its own how to stay relevant and and, and frankly decide, um, you know, are they do they want to serve that quote unquote consumer crossover market or do they want to seed that market and just focus on the professional market? And if they do want to serve that market, uh, then what strategies do they need to implement to, to serve that market? I think it's more of an individual question. Perhaps as, a, as, an, or as an industry, we can share best practices, certainly. But I don't, um, I don't see any way we could all come together and, and jointly create some kind of solution. Uh, that's that's uh, eluding me for, uh, at the moment. But I think we can certainly share best practices. So what would be a possibility that a label could do? Um, well, I think, you know, some of the things, I, I, they all fall under the theme of how do we make it easier to license music and, and reduce the friction. So um, that's one thing we've always focused on with our website. We uh, completely overhauled our website and rebranded it uh, about a year ago. And the theme of our website is simplicity. Uh, there's not tons of pages and pages of text that people have to read on it. We have the uh, the audio matching system, as mentioned earlier on the website. We redid all of our metadata. Uh, we did a, uh, our IT team and music team did a fantastic job overhauling the metadata. So it's very, very easy to search on our website and, and everything can be searched from the search bar without even going into the advanced search. So ease of use is really the key. Um, then, then the question of, of licensing, and that's something, you know, how can, how can licensing be simplified? And that's something that, you know, we're, we're working on some uh, solutions, but I'm not at liberty to discuss that right now. Okay. That's a pity. 
I, I was yeah. kind of waiting, waiting for, <laughs> for a solution, Ron. But thank you. Yeah, to, I understand where you're coming from. So, Ron, I mean, I, I think I'm, I'm right with you on this idea that you can't divide the market between consumers and business because essentially, you know, the, I, I think you might agree that the young YouTuber who's just out of school and is making interesting YouTube videos in five years' time, maybe working in Water Street or Timpan, you know, in Netflix editing. So if we can, you know, if, if they get addicted to a particular supplier and cheap music early on, they're going to want to use that later on. So, uh, I mean, would you agree that that really we need we do need to be tackling those people and, and, and showing them that there is more to it than just the disruptors? Yeah, and it's like um, Ferry mentioned it earlier. I, f I forget the exact phrase I used, but something about, you know, the water flowing to the lowest point or something like that. And that's very much, that's what it's all about. That's inevitable. That consumer is going to get what they want, okay? And it's incumbent on us to deliver that. It's, it's very simple. Yeah, good. Simplicity. Then uh, I, I'm a sailor, Ron, and we have a, an expression, keep it simple, sailor. And it, that's, you know, if you're out in the middle of the ocean, you're in a big storm, you hope that you've made the simple solutions and, you you know, it's a, it's a kind of no-brainer with sailing. I think it, you're applying it to our business. It makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah, there's, a, um, I'm, there's an expression. Uh, I think it's called, I want to say Occam's Razor. I could be wrong about that. But it's, it's a philosophical expression which basically says, you know, if there's a simple explanation for something, there's no need to look any further for more convoluted explanations of it. And that, I, we, really, we really live uh, by that kind of philosophy. Great. Well, Simon and I have been uh, surprised by some of the um, responses that we got, that people don't consider those players a real threat. Well, I don't... I don't quite see how people could look at that it's, it's kind of like you know the record industry in 1999 saying well we don't think napster's a threat no one's going to use yeah. napster I mean, it, you know i it's i think they're, they're deluding themselves quite frankly i mean uh, these companies are out there they're growing they're giving consumers what they want and you know but we still as an industry have a lot of advantages and we need to very very aggressively uh push those advantages and level the playing field. One of our guests made that same point, Ron, and said that in the gap between the time that Napster took over, started to dominate, and the point at which the record industry kind of woke up, a massive amount of market share and capital was lost. And, and he saw that happening with our industry as we made the same mistake of not waking up and smelling the coffee. Oh, yeah, well, this is happened throughout history. I mean, in the, in the 1970s, you know, or 60s, you know, Kodak was the number one film company in the world. And, and one of their engineers actually developed digital photography and brought it to the executive board and said, hey, here's a great new thing, digital photography. And, and, and the uh, executives, you know, shot it down and said, oh, no one's ever going to go for, you know, digital photos. That's not going to happen. We're the leader in 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 uh, in film worldwide, you know, this is this has been we've seen this again and again play out, you know, throughout history, and it's playing out right now. And we need to be wide awake and alert to what's going on here. Is yeah. it arrogance? Uh, well, um, it's difficult to change. It's difficult for people to change when they're accustomed to doing things a, a certain way. I don't know if it's arrogance or not. 
but it takes a lot of energy and, and effort and disruption to change what, what, what one is doing. And, but that's, that's what's required in these, in these kind of situations. I want to go back to uh, the thing that you said about the AIM system, the um, music search. I read uh, an article and you said that 50% of the requests that you get from clients are based on a reference track. I thought it was very high. Um, yeah, that's... Um, I, I haven't crunched the, uh, the precise numbers, but that's, it certainly seems that way. Uh, that clients, uh, and it's it's very a natural thing to do to say here's here's a reference. We like the feel of this, or we like the feel of that. Um, it's a lot easier than describing it, you know, in, in words. Here's what we're looking for, um, and it's so easy these days. So um, yeah, a large uh, percentage of the requests we get, uh, clients do provide uh, various links, um, and we don't we don't have a problem with that. Uh, we have a very, very, very uh, rigorous quality control process. Uh, we work with uh, musicologists. We have multiple uh, music directors and producers reviewing all tracks. Composers are given very strict instructions about how to create original music, uh, very detailed instructions, uh, and including how, how to use and not use samples, um, so we work very close on, on, again, unlike the crowdsourcing sites, which don't do any of this, we work very closely with our, uh, composers and, and, uh, all of our music is very carefully vetted. So we're not, we're not concerned about that. And these, these kind of systems, um, that, that look at a reference track and use audio matching and so on, they're, they're not looking at the melody or the theme. They don't have the ability to look at a melody or theme, which is the, the most important copyrightable element uh, of a song. They're looking at the general feel, the general tempo, the general instrumentation. Uh, these are not copyrightable elements. So we're not uh, concerned about that. And furthermore, like I say, we have such rigorous quality control, we wouldn't be concerned anyway about that. Ron, can I ask you about another subject which, which seems to elicit completely different responses from different publishers, the idea of stems. Now, I'm asking this because obviously there's a demand for them, but it seems to me and some people we've talked to that the, the issue is how you maintain the copyright of them and how you stop people from using your stem with Ferry's stem, with my stem uh, and just having a field day without properly um, rewarding the creators. I wonder what you what your feelings are about stems. Yeah, this is a really interesting question. Um, and this this again is one of the, the big things that's changed over the last 30 years, just more and more stem requests. So um, what we have done is for the most part, we have stems available and on request. So uh, yes, one of our catalogs does have stems up on the website because it was conceived to be a stem kind of a catalog. But for, for the, uh, the majority of our uh, labels, we have stems available on request. And what that does, it allows us to vet the client. So we're not necessarily, you know, sending stems out to, you know, some, some YouTuber, you know, halfway across the world and we don't know what they're going to do with the stems. 
Um, but for, uh, by and large, the STEM requests are coming from uh, clients, professional clients in film, TV, and advertising, or trailers. And we know who they're going to, and we know how they're going to use it. And these clients understand uh, that you can't mix and match stems with other catalogs. That that's uh, that's creating a, a derivative work that's that's not permitted. Uh, and if they want to create a derivative work, that requires our permission in advance. So the clients that we release stems to, by and large, they they understand how to use them, and they understand they cannot be mixed and matched. Well, technically, can you explain to me how, say, a, a client that you trust and you know, and they produce and a really interesting mix from your stem, something that is way different from anything that you might have come up with and play it backwards or speed it up. Uh, how does uh, your recognition software deal with that? Um, it's, a, it's a very interesting question. Um, I don't know is the, is, is the short answer. Okay. We, uh, I, I don't know what we're missing out there Right. Uh, in terms of royalties and recognition by clients creating their own custom mixes with the stems. And that's that's the honest answer. I assume that, you know, if clients are are really uh, mixing mixing stems up and, like you say, speeding them up and uh, doing all kinds of manipulation, I assume that the tracking software is not going to pick that up. So I assume that in those situations, we would only be getting the, the synchronization. But... Uh, but if there's cue sheets involved, hopefully they will be reporting it on, on cue sheets. So um, yeah, uh, I don't know what we're missing uh, as a result of that. Well, do you technically do you uh, watermark all the stems, uh, or, or are they? I mean, so the stems would the watermarks might show up, correct? Uh, we d we do not use watermarking. Um, we have experimented with watermarking in the past. Uh, it, it really hasn't worked for us because as the technology has evolved, we found that some technologies become obsolete, then we have to re-watermark everything. Um, and you know that obviously when you're dealing with hundreds of thousands of tracks becomes a very big problem. So we, uh, the technologies we use are, are fingerprinting, uh, which, which does not, uh, does not uh, change the uh, involve modifying the audio file at all. Can I can I just go back to something that you said in the beginning of this uh, podcast? You were you were tell, telling us that um, you were also dealing with South South America, um, and that's interesting for me because um, if I look at the at the world, I see like South America like like a big black blob. I can't find any sub-publishers there. It just seems that there is no business for library music, production music, uh, in that continent. Am I correct? Uh, no, you're not correct. <laughs> um, we, you know, we have been in uh, Latin America for many, many years. We have a great team there. We've built up a great business there, but it's it's not an easy market. It's a very difficult market to crack. Uh, it involves educating clients about copyright and involves educating clients about what production music is and what we offer. Uh, it involves, you know, accepting, dealing with currency fluctuations. Uh, in many cases, you know, involving, you know, when the, when the currency is upside down and uh, it, involves, it translates into very little dollars in terms of U.S. dollars. 
Um, so there are many, many challenges uh, dealing with these kind of markets, but we have persevered over the years. We've developed some great relationships and we've built up a, a great business in these territories, but uh, it's not for the faint of heart. Ron, uh, as I understand it, production music evolved as a more practical and less expensive alternative to commercial music. I wonder if you thought that distinction between the two forms of music would is breaking down and would continue to be an opportunity for us or something that we need to factor in? Well, this is another change that we've seen over the years, which has been really interesting. Uh, when we started out in this business 30 years ago, we were producing uh, instrumental cues, you know, drama beds and comedy beds, and but it was all instrumental. And now increasingly, uh, you know, we're producing, you know, full-on songs, full-on songs with artists. And it's it's been a huge shift, you know. Um, I am not technically a songwriter. I'm not trained as a songwriter. So it's been a, a huge learning curve for me to think about lyrics and lyric hooks and things like that. But, you know, when we started, it was very, very rare that we produced any kind of songs. It was, a, it was, a, it was really the exception. Once in a while, we would throw a song on an album that happened to be available or come our way. But now, literally, if you look at our website, literally every other album is a full-on song album with full-on lyrics. And it's, it's just been a huge uh, game changer. Um, but, and, and you know, we released the music on, on all the audio services, uh, Spotify and, and Pandora. And, and um, so I really see the lines blurring between commercial music and production music. And the, the quality of music we're producing is, is really no different than commercial music. Um, so um, I think, um, yeah, certainly there are opportunities in there. There are new uh, revenue streams when, when music is, is streamed uh, on these audio services. Uh, it involve, it uh, creates new licensing opportunities. Um, but, you know, the main difference these days between commercial music and production music is, I would say, you know, for the top libraries, uh, not so much uh, the quality of the music, but really just the fact that commercial music involves well-known artists, you know, well-known artists who are touring, uh, who have a following, whereas production music, we're using uh, independent artists. Interesting thing is that uh, a lot of libraries that I talk to uh, is they saying the lyrics are selling the song, but when the client is using the track, they use the instrumental version. Do you think that's correct? That's a really good point, and that's abs absolutely correct. And um, I've I've uh, I've uh, observed many times uh, looking at cue sheets and licenses that there's a similarity between the name of the production and the title uh, of the of the song. And uh, so I think uh, titles go a lot. Titles are really important for uh, for library music. And, and lyrics are really important for library music and lyric hooks. And absolutely, as you're saying, uh, Ferry, uh, the lyrics, quite often, the clients will use a song for the lyric and uh, the, the version they actually use is the instrumental version, but that's absolutely true. Do you think that's also uh, something that the commercial music should consider, that they should be able to release or supply 
instrumental tracks of their songs? Well, you know... Preferably they, not, of course, because you don't want them... Yeah, well, they, they have bigger issues to deal with than that. I mean, the whole licensing process for commercial music, you know, you have to clear, you know, the master and the publishing. In many cases, you have to get the artist's permission. In many cases, there's multiple writers involved. It cannot be done instantaneously. It, it can take days or weeks. To, so there's all kinds of other issues there, way beyond just making the instrumental version available. But um, certainly for us, uh, you know, as a library, it's, it's indispensable to have uh, the instrumental versions. Hmm. So would you say that uh, instrumental music is more malleable than uh, vocal music? Um, well, absolutely, because, you know, the minute you put a lyric in there, it, it becomes very specific and it has to fit, fit the scene, uh, whereas instrumental music is more you know, flexible and malleable, as you say. So, um, but I think, you know, to Ferry's point, in many cases, people want to hear the lyric to know that, hey, this is a legit, legit song, this is a legit artist. And then they feel better about using the instrumental version. It's, it's a funny thing. That's yeah. perception. Yes, exactly, exactly. Well, we're almost at the end of this uh, hour. And it's, uh, it's, it's gone very fast, I think. Yeah. I want to yeah. thank you, Ron, for uh, joining us here uh, for Synchronized, the episode 43. It was very interesting. Some, some great discussion points. Uh, really loved talking uh, with you. So thank you for that. Um, Simon, I always ask, do you have one final question? Yeah, Ron, if you were to suggest one guest for our new season, who would you put forward? Wow, well, you guys um, have really run the gamut. You've had some fantastic guests. Um, uh, I need to give that some, a little thought before blurting something out. So okay. uh, let me give that a little thought. Great. I'd just like to say uh, to our listeners, thanks very much for listening. And uh, if you'd like to give us a good rating, that will just help us get better programs, better guests. So many thanks for listening. Good. Okay. And I just, I just want to give a shout out to you two gentlemen, Ferry and Simon, for creating this podcast. This is really a fantastic uh, podcast that you both have created. And, uh, you know, I listen religiously to it. And um, it's so much great information, so many great guests. So kudos to both of you for creating this. Well, thanks well, thank, very much. Thank you very much. Well, this is it for this season. Uh, we're going to take a, a short break, but we'll be, we'll be back, as Arnold Schwarzenegger would, uh, would say. So for now, I would say thank you and bye. Simon, see you soon. Thank okay. you, Ron. Thank All you. Thank you.